Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Tonight, I read you two Christmas stories. Christmas at Red Butte and Christmas under the snow. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Christmas at Red Butte 
by L. M. Montgomery. Of course, Santa will come, said Jimmy Martin confidently. Jimmy was ten, and at ten it is easy to be confident. Why, he's got to come, because it's Christmas Eve, and he always has come. You know that, twins. Yes, the twins knew it, and cheered by Jimmy's superior wisdom, their doubts passed away. There had been one terrible moment when Theodora had sighed and told them they mustn't be too much disappointed if Santa Claus did not come this year. Because the crops had been poor, and he mightn't have had enough presents to go around. That doesn't make any difference to Santa Claus, scoffed Jimmy. You know well as I do, Theodora Prentice, that Santa Claus is rich whether the crops fail or not. They failed three years ago before your father died, but Santa Claus came all the same. Probably you don't remember it, twins, because you were too little, but I do. Of course he'll come, so don't you worry a mite, and he'll bring my skates and your dolls. He knows we're expecting them, Theodora, because we wrote him a letter last week and threw it up the chimney. And there'll be candy and nuts, of course. A mother's gone to town to buy a turkey. I tell you, we're going to have a ripping Christmas. Well, don't use such slangy words about it, Jimmy boy, said Theodora. She couldn't bear to dampen their hopes any further. And perhaps Aunt Elizabeth might manage it, if the colt sold well. But Theodora had her painful doubts, and she sighed again as she looked out of the window, far down the trail that wound across the prairie, red alighted by the declining sun of the short, wintry afternoon. Do people always sigh like that when they get to be sixteen? asked Jimmy curiously. You didn't sigh like that when you were only fifteen, Theodora. I wish you wouldn't. It makes me feel funny, and it's not a nice kind of funniness either. It's a bad habit I've gotten into lately, said Theodora, trying to laugh. Old folks are dull sometimes, you know, Jimmy boy. Sixteen is awful old, isn't it? said Jimmy reflectively. I'll tell you what I'm going to do when I'm sixteen, Theodora. I'm going to pay off the mortgage and buy Mother's silk dress and a piano for the twins. Won't that be elegant? I'll be able to do that because I'm a man. Of course, if I was only a girl, I couldn't. I hope you'll be a good, kind, brave man and a real help to your mother, said Theodora softly, sitting down before the cosy fire and lifting the fat little twins into her lap. Oh, I'll be good to her, never you fear, assured Jimmy, squatting comfortably down on the little fur rug before the stove, the skin of the coyote his father had killed four years ago. I believe in being good to your mother, because you've only got the one. Now tell us a story, Theodora. A real jolly story, you know, with lots of fighting in it. Only please don't kill anybody. I like to hear about fighting, but I like to have all the people come out alive. Theodora laughed and began a story about the real rebellion of 85, a story which had the double merit of being true and exciting at the same time. It was quite dark when she finished, and the twins were nodding, but Jimmy's eyes were wide open and sparkling. That was great, he said, drawing a long breath. Tell us another. No, it's bedtime for you all, said Theodora firmly. One story at a time is my rule, you know. But I want to sit up till Mother comes home, objected Jimmy. You can't. She may be very late, 
for she would have to wait to see Mr. Porter. Besides, you don't know what time Santa Claus might come, if he comes at all. If he were to drive along and see you children up instead of being sound asleep in bed, he might go right on and never call at all. This argument was too much for Jimmy. All right, we'll go. But we have to hang up our stockings first. Twins, get yours. The twins toddled off in great excitement and brought back their Sunday stockings, which Jimmy proceeded to hang along the edge of the mantel shelf. This done, they all trooped obediently off to bed. Theodore gave another sigh and seated herself at the window where she could watch the moonlit prairie for Mrs. Martin's homecoming and knit at the same time. I'm afraid that you will think from all the sighing Theodore was doing that she was a very melancholy and despondent young lady. You couldn't think anything more unlike the real Theodore. She was the jolliest, bravest girl of 16 in all Saskatchewan, as her shining brown eyes and rosy dimpled cheeks would have told you. And her sighs were not on her own account, but simply for fear the children were going to be disappointed. She knew that they would be almost heartbroken if Santa Claus did not come, that this would hurt the patient, hard-working little mother more than all else. Five years before this, Theodore had come to live with Uncle George and Aunt Elizabeth in the little log house at Red Butte. Her own mother had just died, and Theodora had her only big brother Donald left, and Donald had Klondike fever. The Martins were poor, but they had gladly made room for their little niece, and Theodora had lived there ever since, her aunt's right-hand girl and the beloved playmate of the children. They had been very happy until Uncle George's death two years before this Christmas Eve, but since then there had been hard times in the little log house, and though Mrs. Martin and Theodora did their best, it was a woefully hard task to make both ends meet, especially this year when their crops had been poor. Theodora and her aunt had made every sacrifice possible for the children's sake, and at least Jimmy and the twins had not felt the pinch very severely yet. At seven, Mrs. Martin's bells jingled at the door, and Theodora flew out. Go right in and get warm, Auntie, she said briskly. I'll take Ned away and unharness him. It's a bitterly cold tonight, said Mrs. Martin wearily. There was a note of discouragement in her voice that struck dismay to Theodora's heart. I'm afraid it means no Christmas for the children tomorrow, she thought sadly, as she led Ned away to the stable. When she returned to the kitchen, Mrs. Martin was sitting by the fire, her face in her chilled hands, sobbing convulsively. Auntie, oh, Auntie, don't, exclaimed Theodora impulsively. It was such a rare thing to see her plucky, resolute little aunt in tears. You're cold and tired. I'll have a nice cup of tea for you in a trice. No, it isn't that, said Mrs. Martin brokenly. It was seeing those stockings hanging there. Theodora, I couldn't get a thing for the children, not a single thing. Mr. Porter would only give forty dollars for the colt. And when all the bills were paid, there was barely enough left for such necessaries as we must have. I suppose I ought to feel thankful I could get those. But the thought of the children's disappointment tomorrow is more than I can bear. It would have been better to have told them long ago, but I kept building on getting more for the colt. Well, it's weak and foolish to give way like this. We'd better both take a cup of tea and go to bed. 
It will save fuel. When Theodora went up to her little room, her face was very thoughtful. She took a small box from her table and carried it to the window. In it was a very pretty little gold locket hung on a narrow blue ribbon. Theodora held it tenderly in her fingers and looked out over the moonlit prairie with a very somber face. Could she give up her dear locket, the locket Donald had given her just before he started for the Klondike? She never thought she could do such a thing. It was almost the only thing she had to remind her of Donald, handsome, merry, impulsive, warm-hearted Donald, who'd gone away four years ago with a smile on his bonny face and splendid hope in his heart. Here's a locket for you, gift of God, he had said. He had such a dear, loving habit of calling her by the beautiful meaning of her name. A lump came into Theodore's throat as she remembered it. I couldn't afford a chain too, but when I come back, I'll bring you a rope of Klondike nuggets for it. Then he had gone away. For two years, letters had come from him regularly. Then he wrote that he had joined a prospecting party to a remote wilderness. After that was silence, deepening into anguish of suspense that finally ended in hopelessness. A rumor came that Donald Prentice was dead. None had returned from the expedition he had joined. Theodora had long ago given up all hope of ever seeing Donald again. Hence, her locket was doubly dear to her. But Aunt Elizabeth had always been so good and loving and kind to her. Could she not make the sacrifice for her sake? Yes, she could, and would. Theodora flung up her head with a gesture that meant decision. She took out of the locket the bits of hair, her mother's and Donald's, which it contained. Perhaps a tear or two fell as she did so, and then hastily donned her warmest cap and wraps. It was only three miles to Spencer. She could easily walk it in an hour, and as it was Christmas Eve, the shops would be open late. She must walk, for Ned could not be taken out again, and the mare's foot was sore. Besides, Aunt Elizabeth must not know until it was done. As stealthily as if she were bound on some nefarious errand, Theodora slipped downstairs and out of the house. The next minute she was hurrying along the trail in the moonlight. The great, dazzling prairie was around her. The mystery and splendor of the northern night all about her. It was very calm and cold, but Theodora walked so briskly that she kept warm. The trail from Red Butte to Spencer was a lonely one. Mr. Lurgan's house, halfway to town, was the only dwelling on it. When Theodora reached Spencer, she made her way at once to the only jewelry store the little town contained. Mr. Benson, its owner, had been a friend of her uncle's, and Theodora felt sure that he would buy her locket. Nevertheless, her heart beat quickly, and her breath came and went uncomfortably fast as she went in. Suppose he wouldn't buy it? Then there would be no Christmas for the children at Red Butte. Good evening, Miss Theodora, said Mr. Benson briskly. What can I do for you? I'm afraid I'm not a very welcome sort of customer, Mr. Benson, said Theodora, with an uncertain smile. I want to sell, not buy. Could you... Will you buy this locket? Mr. Benson pierced up his lips, took up the locket and examined it. Well, I don't often buy second-hand stuff, he said, after some reflection. But I don't mind obliging you, Miss Theodora. I'll give you four dollars for this trinket. 
Theodore knew that the locket had cost a great deal more than that. Four dollars would get what she wanted, and she dared not ask for more. In a few minutes, the locket was in Mr. Benson's possession, and Theodora, with four crisp new bills in her purse, was hurrying to the toy store. Half an hour later, she was on her way back to Redbutte with as many parcels as she could carry. Jimmy's skates, two lovely dolls with the twins, packages of nuts and candy, and a nice plump turkey. Theodore beguiled her lonely tramp by picturing the children's joy in the morning. About a quarter of a mile past Mr. Lurgan's house, the trail curved suddenly about a bluff of poplars. As Theodore rounded the turn, she halted in amazement. Almost at her feet, the body of a man was lying across the road. He was clad in a big fur coat and had a fur cap pulled well down over his forehead and ears. Almost all of him that could be seen was a full bushy beard. Theodore had no idea who he was or where he had come from, but she realized that he was unconscious and that he would speedily freeze to death if help were not brought. The footprints of a horse galloping across the prairie suggested a fall and a runaway, but Theodora did not waste time in speculation. She ran back at full speed to Mr. Lurgan's and roused the household. In a few minutes, Mr. Lurgan and his son had hitched a horse to a wood sleigh and hurried down the trail to the unfortunate man. Theodora, knowing that her assistance was not needed and that she ought to get home as quickly as possible, went on her way as soon as she had seen the stranger in safekeeping. When she reached the little log house, she crept in, cautiously put the children's gifts in their stockings, placed the turkey on the table where Aunt Elizabeth would see it the first thing in the morning, and then slipped off to bed, a very weary but very happy girl. The joy that reigned in the little log house the next day more than repaid Theodora for her sacrifice. Whoopee, didn't I tell you that Santa Claus would come all right? shouted the delighted Jimmy. Oh, what splendid skates. The twins hugged their dolls in silent rapture, but Aunt Elizabeth's face was the best of all. Then the dinner had to be prepared and everybody had a hand in that. Just as Theodora, after a grave peep into the oven, had announced that the turkey was done, a sleigh dashed around the house. Theodora flew to answer the knock at the door and there stood Mr. Lurgan and a big, bewhiskered, fur-coated fellow whom Theodore recognized as the stranger she had found on the trail. But was he a stranger? There was something oddly familiar in those merry brown eyes. Theodore felt herself growing dizzy. Donald, she gasped. Oh, Donald. And then she was in the big fellow's arms, laughing and crying at the same time. Donald it was indeed. And then followed half an hour during which everybody talked at once and the turkey would have been burned to a crisp had it not been for the presence of mind of Mr. Lurgan, who, being the least excited of them all, took it out of the oven and set it on the back of the stove. To think that it was you last night, that I never dreamed it, exclaimed Theodora. Oh, Donald, if I hadn't gone to town. I'd have frozen to death, I'm afraid, said Donald soberly. I got into Spencer on the last train last night. I felt that I must come right out. I couldn't wait till morning but there wasn't a team to be got for love or money. It was Christmas Eve and all the livery rigs were out. So I came on horseback. Just by that bluff, something frightened my horse and he shied violently. I was half asleep and thinking of my little sister and I went off like a shot. 
I suppose I struck my head against a tree. Anyway, I knew nothing more until I came to in Mr. Lurkin's kitchen. I wasn't much hurt, feel none the worse except for a sore head and shoulder. But oh, give to God, how you have grown. I can't realize that you are the little sister I left four years ago. I suppose you've been thinking I was dead? Yes, and O'Donnell, where have you been? Well, I went way up north with a prospecting party. We had a tough time the first year, I can tell you, and some of us never came back. We weren't in a country where post offices were lying round loose either, you see. Then at last, just when we were about giving up in despair, we struck it rich. I've brought a snug little pal home with me, and things are going to look up in this log house. There'll be no more worrying for you, dear people, over mortgages. I'm so glad, for auntie's sake, said Theodora with shining eyes. But oh, Donald, it's best of all just to have you back. I'm so perfectly happy that I don't know what to do or say. Well, I think you might have dinner, said Jimmy in an injured tone. The turkey's getting stone cold, and I'm almost starving. I just can't stand it another minute. So with a laugh, they all sat down to the table and ate the merriest Christmas dinner the little log house had ever known. Christmas Under the Snow by Olive Thorne Miller It was just before Christmas and Mr. Barnes was starting for the nearest village. The family were out at the door to see him start and give him the last charges. Don't forget the Christmas dinner, Papa, said Willie. Especially the chickens for the pie, put in Nora. And the waisins, piped up little Tot, standing on tiptoe to give Papa a goodbye kiss. I hate to have you go, George, said Mrs. Barnes anxiously. It looks to me like a storm. Oh, I guess it won't be much, said Mr. Barnes lightly. And the youngsters must have their Christmas dinner, you know. Well, said Mrs. Barnes, remember this, George. If there is a bad storm, don't try to come back. Stay in the village till it is over. We can get along for a few days, can't we, Willie? Turning to the boy who was giving the last touches to the harness of old Tim, the horse. Oh, yes, Papa, I can take care of Mama, said Willie earnestly. And get up the Christmas dinner out of nothing, asked Papa, smiling. I don't know, said Willie, hesitating, as he remembered the proposed dinner in which he felt a deep interest. What could you do for the chicken pie? went on Papa with a roguish look in his eye. Or the plum pudding? Or the raisins? broke in Tot anxiously. Tot has her heart set on the raisins, said Papa, tossing the small maiden up higher than his head and dropping her all laughing on the doorstep. And Tot shall have them sure if Papa can find them. Now goodbye, all. Willie, remember to take care of Mama, and I depend on you to get up a Christmas dinner if I don't get back. Now, wife, don't worry, were his last words as the faithful old horse started down the road. Mrs. Barnes turned one more glance to the west, where a low, heavy bank of clouds was slowly rising, and went into the little house to attend to her morning duties. Willie, she said, and they were all in the snug little log cabin in which they lived. I'm sure there's going to be a storm, and it may be snow. You'd better prepare enough wood for two or three days. Nora will help bring it in. 
Me too, said grave little Tot. Yes, Tot may help too, said Mama. This simple little home was a busy place, and soon everyone was hard at work. It was late in the afternoon before the pile of wood, which had been steadily growing all day, was high enough to satisfy Willie. For now, there was no doubt about the coming storm, and it would probably bring snow. No one could guess how much in that country of heavy storms. I wish the village was not so far off so that Papa could get back tonight, said Willie as he came in with his last load. Mrs. Barnes glanced out of the window. Broad, scattering snowflakes were silently falling, the advance guard, she felt them to be, of a numerous host. So do I, she replied anxiously, or that he did not have to come over that dreadful prairie where it is so easy to get lost. But old Tim knows the way, even in the dark, said Willie proudly. I believe Tim knows more than some folks. No doubt he does, about the way home, said Mama. And we won't worry about Papa, but have our supper and go to bed. That'll make the time seem short. The meal was soon eaten and cleared away. The fire carefully covered up on the hearth, and the whole little family quietly in bed. Then the storm, which had been making ready all day, came down upon them in earnest. The bleak wind howled around the corners, the white flakes by millions and millions came with it and hurled themselves upon that house. In fact, that poor little cabin alone on the wide prairie seemed to be the object of their sport. They sifted through the cracks of the wall, around the windows and under the door, and made pretty little drifts on the floor. They piled up against it outside, covered the steps, and then the door, and then the windows, and then the roof, and at last buried it completely out of sight under the soft white mass. And all the time, the mother and her three children lay snugly covered up in their beds, fast asleep, and knew nothing about it. The night passed away, and morning came. But no light broke through the windows of the cabin. Mrs. Barnes woke at the usual time, but finding it still dark and perfectly quiet outside, she concluded that the storm was over, and with a sigh of relief turned over to sleep again. About eight o'clock, however, she could sleep no more, and became wide awake enough to think the darkness strange. At that moment, the clock struck, and the truth flashed over her. Being buried under snow is no uncommon thing on the wide prairies, and since they had wood and cornmeal in plenty, she would not have been much alarmed if her husband had been home. But snow deep enough to bury them must cover up all landmarks, and she knew her husband would not rest till he had found them. To get lost on the trackless prairie was fearfully easy, and to suffer and die almost in sight of home was no unusual thing, and was her one dread in living there. A few moments she lay quiet in bed to calm herself and get control of her own anxieties before she spoke to the children. Willie, she said at last, are you awake? Yes, Mama, said Willie. I've been awake ever so long. Isn't it most morning? Willie, said the mother quietly, we mustn't be frightened, but I think... I'm afraid we're snowed in. Willie bounded to his feet and ran to the door. Don't open it, said Mama hastily. The snow may fall in. Light a candle and look out the window. In a moment, 
the flickering rays of the candle fell upon the window. Willie drew back the curtain. Snow was tightly banked up against it to the top. Why, Mama, he exclaimed, so we are. And how can Papa find us? And what shall we do? We must do the best we can, said Mama, in a voice which she tried to make steady, and trust that it isn't very deep, and that Tim and Papa will find us and dig us out. By this time, the little girls were awake and inclined to be very much frightened, but Mama was calm now, and Willie was brave and helpful. They all dressed, and Willie started the fire. The smoke refused to rise, but puffed out into the room. And Mrs. Barnes knew that if the chimney were closed, they would probably suffocate if they did not starve or freeze. The smoke in a few minutes choked them, and seeing that something must be done, she put the two girls, well wrapped in blankets, into the shed outside the back door, closed the door to keep out the smoke, and then went with Willie to the low attic where a scuttle door opened onto the roof. We must try, she said, to get it open without letting in too much snow and see if we can manage to clear the chimney. I can reach the chimney from the scuttle with a shovel, said Willie. I often have with a stick. After much labor and several small avalanches of snow, the scuttle was opened far enough for Willie to stand on the top round of the short ladder and beat a hole through to the light, which was only a foot above. He then shoveled off the top of the chimney, which was ornamented with a big round cushion of snow. And then by beating and shoveling, he was able to clear the door, which he opened wide, and Mrs. Barnes came up on the ladder to look out. Dreary indeed was the scene, nothing but snow as far as the eye could reach, and flakes still falling, though lightly. The storm was evidently almost over, but the sky was grey and overcast. They closed the door, went down, and soon had a fire hoping that the smoke would guide somebody to them. Breakfast was taken by candlelight, dinner in time in the same way, and supper passed with no sound from the outside world. Many times Willie and Mama went to the scuttle door to see if anyone was in sight, but not a shadow broke the broad expanse of white over which toward night the sun shone. Of course there were no signs of the roads, for through so deep snow none could be broken, until the sun and frost could form a crust on top, there was little hope of their being reached. The second morning broke, and Willie hurried up to his post of lookout the first thing. No person was in sight, but he found a light crust on the snow, and the first thing he noticed was a few half-starved birds trying in vain to pick up something to eat. They looked weak and almost exhausted and a thought struck Willie. It was hard to keep up the courage of the little household. Nora had openly lamented that tonight was Christmas Eve, and no Christmas dinner to be had. Todd had grown very tearful about her weasons, and Mrs. Barnes, though she tried to keep up heart, had become very pale and silent. Willie, though he felt unbounded faith in Papa, and especially in Tim, found it hard to suppress his own complaints when he remembered that Christmas would probably be passed in the same dismal way, with fears for Papa added to their own misery. The wood, too, was getting low, and Mama dared not let the fire go out, as that was the only sign of their existence to anybody, and though she did not speak of it, Willie knew, too, 
that they had not many candles, and in two days at farthest they would be left in the dark. The thought that struck Willie pleased him greatly, and he was sure it would cheer up the rest. He made his plans and went to work to carry them out without saying anything about it. He brought out of a corner of the attic an old box trap he had used in the summer to catch birds and small animals, set it carefully on the snow, and scattered crumbs of cornbread to attract the birds. In half an hour he went up again and found to his delight he had caught bigger game, a poor rabbit which had come from no one knows where over the crust to find food. This gave Willie a new idea. They could save their Christmas dinner after all. Rabbits made very nice pies. Poor Bunny was quietly laid to rest and the trap set again. This time, another rabbit was caught, perhaps the mate of the first. This was the last of the rabbits. The next catch was a couple of snowbirds. This Willie carefully placed in a corner of the attic, using the trap for a cage and giving them plenty of food and water. When the girls were fast asleep, with tears on their cheeks for the dreadful Christmas they were going to have, Willie told Mama about his plans. Mama was pale and weak with anxiety, and his news first made her laugh and then cry. But after a few moments given to her long, pent-up tears, she felt much better and entered into his plans heartily. The two captives up in the attic were to be Christmas presents to the girls, and the rabbits were to make the long-anticipated pie. As for plum pudding, of course, that couldn't be thought of. But don't you think, Mama, said Willie eagerly, that you could make some sort of cake out of meal, and wouldn't hickory nuts be good in it? You know I have some left up in the attic, and I might crack them softly up there. And don't you think they would be good? He concluded anxiously. Well, perhaps so, said Mama, anxious to please him and help him in his generous plans. I can try. If only I had some eggs, but it seems to me I have heard that snow beaten into cake would make it light. And there's snow enough, I'm sure, she added with a faint smile. The first Willie had seen for three days. The smile alone he felt to be a great achievement, and he crept carefully up the ladder, cracked the nuts to the last one, brought them down, and Mama picked the meats out while he dressed the two rabbits which had come so opportunely to be their Christmas dinner. Wish you a Merry Christmas, he called out to Nora and Tot when they waked. See what Santa Claus has brought you. Before they had time to remember what a sorry Christmas it was to be, they received their presents, a live bird for each, a bird that was never to be kept in a cage, but fly about the house till summer came, and then to go away if it wished. Pets were scarce on the prairie, and the girls were delighted. Nothing Papa could have brought them would have given them so much happiness. They thought no more of the dinner, but hurried to dress themselves and feed the birds, which were quite tame from hunger and weariness. But after a while, they saw preparations for dinner too. Mama made a crust and lined a deep dish, the chicken pie dish, and then she brought a mysterious something out of the cupboard, all cut up, so that it looked as if it might be chicken, and put it in the dish with other things. And then she took them all under a thick crust and set it down in a tin oven under the fire to bake. And that was not all. She got out some more cornmeal and made a batter and put in some sugar and something else which she slipped in from a bowl and which looked in the batter something like raisins. And at the last moment, Willie brought her a cup of snow and she hastily beat it into the cake or pudding, whichever you might call it, 
Other children laughed at the idea of making a cake out of snow. This went into the same oven, and pretty soon it rose up light and showed a beautiful brown crust, while the pie was steaming through little fork holes on top and sending out most delicious odors. At the last minute, when the table was set and everything ready to come up, Willie ran up to look out of the scuttle, as he had every hour of daylight since they were buried. In a moment came a wild shout down the ladder. They're coming. Hooray for old Tim. Mamma rushed up and looked out, and saw, to be sure, old Tim slowly coming along over the crust, drawing after him a wood sled on which were two men. It's Papa, shouted Willie, waving his arms to attract their attention. Willie came back over the snow in tones of agony. Is that you? Are you well? All well, shouted Willie, and just going to have our Christmas dinner. Dinner, echoed Papa, who was now nearer. Where's the house then? Oh, down here, said Willie, under the snow. But we're all right. Only we mustn't let the plum pudding spoil. Looking into the attic, Willie found that Mama had fainted away, and this news brought to her aid Papa and the other man, who proved to be a good friend who would come to help. Tim was tied to the chimney, whose thread of smoke had guided them home, and all went down into the dark room. Mrs. Barnes soon recovered, and while Willie dished up the smoking dinner, stories were told on both sides. Mr. Barnes had been trying to get through the snow and to find them all the time, but until the last night had made a stiff crust, he had been unable to do so. Then Mrs. Barnes told her story, winding up with the account of Willie's Christmas dinner. And if it hadn't been for his keeping up our hearts, I don't know what would have come of us, she said at last. Well, my son, said Papa, you did take care of Mama and get up a dinner out of nothing, sure enough. And now we eat the dinner, which I'm sure is delicious. So it proved to be. Even the cake or pudding, which taught christened snow pudding, was voted very nice and the hickory nuts as good as raisins. When they had finished, Mr. Barnes brought in his packages, gave Tot and the rest some sure-enough raisins, and added his Christmas presents to Willie's. And though all were overjoyed, nothing was quite so nice in their eyes as the two live birds. After dinner, the two men and Willie dug out passages from the doors, through the snow, which had wasted a good deal, uncovered the windows and made a slanting way to his shed for old Tim. Then, for two or three days, Willie made tunnels and little rooms under the snow, and for two weeks, while the snow lasted, Nora and Tot had fine times in the little snow playhouses. Good night. <laughs>